we turn to, the, to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race the runners all compete, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you might win it. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating in the air, but I punish my body and enslave it so that after proclaiming to others, I myself should not be disqualified. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. Just as you promised to do so whenever we gather in your name, O God, continue in this moment to dwell with us, to take up space in this sanctuary and in our hearts and in our lives. Bless us with yourself and the abounding grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, that opens us up to a word from you. This we pray. Amen. So that brief passage in the image of an athlete doesn't really require much explanation, right? We get the image. We know what that is. And that's not always the case with the Bible. Quite often in the Bible, we read a passage and we don't know what's going on. We have to have a lot of explanation to get what it's saying. Like when Jesus tells a parable, sometimes we'll read the parable and we feel, you know, really small and that it goes right over our heads until we, we, say, we learn things like, well, this is what was going on at the time and this is the practice that they had and this is how they do it. And then here comes Jesus and says to do it this way and all of a sudden we go, oh, I get it now, I understand. There are a lot of passages like that given that it's written in a history, historical context so far back, but this is not one of them. This is a very straightforward piece. We get what a runner is. Running hasn't changed, really. I mean, they didn't have Nike back then, but they did have feet, so they ran. We get the training and the, the discipline and the hardship of preparing for a race enslaving themselves to it in a matter of speaking. We get that. We don't need to go more into that. But there are a couple of things that we can learn about this passage that might help clarify a couple of things and, and understand it a little better. The first is this. It comes at the end of a longer argument that Paul is making that has begun in the previous chapter 8. He is speaking to the people of Corinth or the church in Corinth and lifting out what he has determined to be idolatrous behavior around the ritual practice of offering food to idols. It's this practice that's very cultural, and he's pulling that out and trying to point at it and, and get them kind of to think about that as an idolatry that is, is almost misplaced for the Christian life. And so he goes from there to talk about how he lives the Christian life and how he's had to let go of things and, and what that's all about. And then he says, use me as an example and run 
like the runner, be like the runner who runs the race to win with that kind of eagerness and determination. So that's where the image comes in at the end of this longer conversation. The other thing that might be helpful is the examples he uses. The example of the athlete would have made the Corinthians immediately think of the games that happened in Corinth before and after the, or a year before and a year after, the Olympic Games in Olympia on the other side of Greece. Way back at the very beginning when the first round of the Olympics started in Olympia, there were games in Corinth a year prior and a year after. And they would have immediately thought of that. And two of the more popular events in that, in that event was running and boxing, which is why Paul uses runner and boxer in this brief passage. He pulls the phrase perishable wreath because the winner of an event in the Isthmian, Isthmian Games, as they were called, the winner in, in whatever event would stand there in, at, on the podium and the prize that they were given was a wreath made, get this, made out of withered celery. Withered celery, of all things. Now, think about that. You've, you've put in all, you've given everything. You've enslaved your body to this preparation. And you've run the race of your life. And you were, you beat everybody in the pack and you are there at the podium and the judge walks up to you and says, way to go. Here's your bad celery. Isn't that great? I actually think Paul is poking fun at that a little bit in this text. And saying, because his point is, in a sense, if these runners give all of themselves for bad vegetables, how much more should we give to a gospel that isn't perishable, that's imperishable, to a God who is eternal? How much more? That's kind of part of this, of this reading, this text. So part of what Paul is doing is pressing us to do better, certainly, to set higher expectations. But one of the traps that we can fall into that, that we need to be careful of that is a difference between then and now is the individualistic mindset that we have grown up in, this society that lifts up the individual. We can fall into the trap of thinking that this is just a, a self-individual, self-help curriculum to help us improve our, our spiritual life so that at the end of the race, we get to stand on the podium and get the best spiritual person that ever lived pride. Right, that that's kind of where we can go with it. That this is an individual. This is pointing just at us as as individuals, and that's that's not what Paul's doing. Professor Eric Barreto at, at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, 
points that out. He says we can easily be tempted into thinking that Paul is pushing for a rugged individualistic faith. And that's not what he's saying at all. But to get that, we have to back off of it and, and put it in the place of the larger thrust of the letter. And the larger thrust of the letter itself is written to a community of people to push for unity. Unity within the family of faith. That's why Paul talks about their differences and their struggles with the food practices in the last chapter and all of that. Pushing for unity in the community of faith. That Paul himself is not saying that he runs or boxes for his own sake. In fact, Paul, right before our reading today, says very specifically, I run for the, I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I might share in its blessings. It's this idea of sharing and community that's deeply embedded in all of this letter and all of what he writes. So it's a communal thing, not an individual thing. He's writing this letter to a community of people, to us, saying each of us should do our part to help not us only, but the community to live that kind of life, to run that kind of race, to have that kind of faith. It's communal, not individual. And we can get caught there. It's a hard switch for us to make. Because we think so much of what we do is, look what I did. Whether it's running a race or, or facing life's challenges or, or giving. Or giving. I still find myself doing that, but in, in periods of my life, certainly early on, I thought of my own giving as simply individual. Something only between me and God and no one else. Like some of you, I grew up in the church. I, my family went to church every Sunday when we were in town. If we were out of town, we'd sometimes find a church to go to still. Parents used to ask my mom, you know, how in the world do you get your kids to church all the time? And she didn't know how to answer that question. And she just said, well, it's not, this is not an issue. This, we just go. That's what we do. It's not up for discussion. I don't know what else to say. I grew up with that, trying to discuss it, and it wasn't allowed to be discussed. We're going, let's go. We went every, we went every week. And I watched my parents give their time to the church. I watched my parents and their friends give their time and their money to the church. I watched that. And as I got older, I kept giving my time to the church. Notice I said time. I kept giving my time. And, and I never, it's funny, I never thought or worried about how much time I was giving or whether it was enough time or not enough time or whether I was giving my time to the right things. I never, it never crossed, I, I did it because I enjoyed doing it. And you know what I did start worrying about? How much money I was giving or not giving at the time. 
That's a clue, by the way, that if there is an idol today, money is it. Money is our idol. It is just constantly anxiety-producing and worry-producing, and so much of our energy goes to money. I worried about what I gave. I had this nagging voice in the back of my head, and I didn't like that voice much. We weren't friends. And, and the voice kept saying to me, you can do better than that. You, you should do more in that area of your involvement in the church. I wasn't making much at the time, so I obviously wasn't giving much. And so but I, I, I decided to, to work on that. And so what I did was I started to set higher expectations. And the first thing I did, I did this some as a kid, but, but then I lapsed. And so I re-entered it. I, I wrote down on a card what I expected to give, what I planned. A pledge card, commitment card, estimate card, whatever you want to call it. Churches call it different things. That's what I, that was my first thing, to write that down. I wasn't going to go hog wild and do something crazy like, you know, a million dollars. I wasn't going to do that. I was going to be realistic. And I wrote it down. Second thing I did, I remember doing this, was I decided to set a goal for what I thought my giving should eventually be. And I decided to go Old Testament on the thing. And so, 10%, I said 10%. 10% of what I make, I'm going to give away. That was my goal. And I sat down with that and went, oh my gosh, that's a lot. And it is. It is. But I set that goal. And I decided right then and there, I wasn't going to feel guilty about not meeting it. I was just going to add a little each year. And I figured eventually, hopefully before I die, I will get there. I'll get there. I kept with it. And I kept, you know, adding. And guess what? It, it took a long time. I mean, it took a long time. It felt like a long time, you know, living with this goal and not meeting my goal and but I finally did. I finally got there. I could officially call myself a tither. You know, they use that old language. An Old Testament giver is what I was. An Old Testament giver. I met the, the goal. I was done, right? Standing on the podium, right? I did it. I finished the race. I was there. Where's my celery wreath? But something funny happened then. I kept looking around at this church that I was, grew up in, these people that kept giving and giving and giving. I, I kept reading the New Testament that speaks more and more, reminds me more and more of a, a God whose generous grace doesn't stop, keeps going. This notion of a God who doesn't just give part, but gives all, pours himself out completely for us, to us, in Jesus Christ. That, that notion sat, just sat there at the bottom of my gut, and I kept feeling this tug at my heart to not stop, to keep going. So, I did. I started adding again each year. 
And it was right around then that I stopped seeing my giving as an individual thing. And I started seeing it as part of the life of something much, much larger. Not just part of the life of others in one church, but part of the life of God everywhere. That when I gave and give, I was and am participating in the very giving of God. That my giving is part of God's giving. And I started seeing images of things like how one person alone can't lift a car, but if you get enough enough people, you can lift almost anything. I, I saw my giving like that, exactly like that. So ever since then, you could say I became a, a New Testament giver. And from then on, now my family sits down every year and we talk about at least for that piece, how much we, more we can do. It doesn't matter. Stop tithing. I mean, I'm, you know, when you're kind of, when that's in the background, it's, we're beyond that. How much more? And it doesn't matter whether we're going to get a raise or not. Now, if one of us loses a job, I hope I don't lose mine soon. That would certainly be a factor, but aside from that, when things are in their right place, we talk about it's, doesn't matter if the church is asking for more or not. We're going to give more each year. That's, it's become for us a spiritual practice. And when I look back on it, I wouldn't have seen it this way then, but when I look back on it now, you know what I see? I see someone in training. I see someone who's still in training. Someone who was being disciplined in the spiritual practice of generosity. That's what I see when I look back. And when I look out at you today and really every week, I see a group of people somewhere along that same road. Whether you're at the starting gate and are just feeling that tug to start setting doing, giving more, or whether you're further along. I see us all somewhere on that road. Not doing it because we have to. The runner doesn't run because they've read some rule that tells them they're supposed to run. The runner runs because they love the race. They love running. Our giving is the same way. That's how I see it. We don't give because we are just obligated or feel rule-bound to do it. We give because God has given us the ability to give. That's our race. Can you imagine what would happen and what that race would look like if every single one of us started setting higher expectations as we go along in life? Can you imagine what that might be. So, what do you say? Are you in? Amen. Oh,